Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Welcome, Inner Circle members, to the June 2016 podcast. And this month, we're going to be going into getting into the business. And uh, any advice that I have uh, to offer to all of you, Um Way back, I think about a year ago, I did one of these getting into the business and it was a huge success. And we've had even more questions submitted on this subject. And I wanted to be able to address all of those as well. Again, the podcast is there for all of you uh, to reach out and touch me as well as me reaching out and touching you and helping you with all the the uh, questions and you know, offering solutions for what you all are, uh, you know, going through in your careers. And um, so having those questions is very important to this, this section of learning within the inner circle. So let's make sure we continue those questions because we live and breathe by this. Uh, so thank you very much again. And let's start this baby. All right. Hi, Shane. I'm glad for the inner circle, and it's the only place I know where I can ask this question. See, this is the power of this baby. All right. Remembering to the days when you were transitioning to director photography, how did you begin to build relationships with vendors? I'm talking about rental houses, camera and lighting manufacturers, and post houses as well. Whenever you mention an outside vendor, it always seems as though you receive individualized personal service. Did you have to build a reputation, have a certain budget level, or have a significant amount of repeat business before that happened? Every step in the production process is critical, and vendors provide the tools that we all build upon. I'd love any tips on how to foster those critical career-long relationships that ASC cinematographers seem to have with those professionals who prep, build, and customize their gear. Thank you, Pierre. 
Pierre, this is an amazing question. And uh, I wanted it to be the lead question of this podcast because getting into the business is one thing, but formulating lasting relationships is everything. And you do this by loyalty. Loyalty across the board will give you this. When you speak of the individualized and personal service, that has come from me going to the place, like, let's just say, um, perfect example, let me say, Laser Pacific is now Technicolor. But Laser Pacific was a very small post-production house that had an incredible two DIT bays, and an amazing theater, and some really great colorists. Well, I went there on a low-budget movie. I really, really never knew much about Laser Pacific, but they were the place that, uh, you know, where I did the Rat Pack. Okay, now that's the beginning of my career, my first narrative piece that I ever did. So, and they did like the, there was no DI back then. This is the, the nineties. Uh, so there was, you know, the telecine process and this was a made for TV movie. So it was all four, three and, uh, aspect ratio. And it was, you know, we were just color correcting it for the small screen. But that relationship that I set up with the colorist on that project, Mike Soa, has stayed with me for my whole career. And Mike and I have drifted in and out of projects. And the last one he did with me was Need for Speed, which was very recent. And uh, it was such a great reunion of getting back with Mike on that project. Now, we're talking 1998 to 2013 when I did Need for Speed, but I had been going to Laser Pacific and going with an, uh, another colorist that was available there called David Cole. Now, he's recently moved to another uh, post house, but we did three or four movies together, and he also did uh, The Ticket, which was that short film I did with the Canon 1DC. But these are the relationships that I started in 1998 and would always go back there for everything that I did. Uh, if I could uh, suggest them as the DI house or the Telecine house or the Daily's house, whatever it was, I was always going back there. And Nancy was my contact and she was kind of the producer for a DI producer. And even though they've turned, you know, Technicolor bought Laser Pacific out, Nancy is still there and I go to her every time, uh, you know, I have a project. And these are the things that you do and you build this loyalty. Now, when I was a gaffer, I used Hollywood Rental and Hollywood Rental was my grip and lighting house. And that uh, was a great relationship for a long time. And then the person that really was the heart and soul of Hollywood Rental left. When this happens, you have two ways to go about it. You can continue that relationship with whoever takes over, or you can then opt to look 
in other places. So my loyalty was to Hollywood Rental when Carly was there. But when Carly left, it kind of, the business didn't work and function as efficiently as I had hoped to as a gaffer. So I looked in other places and I found Pascal Lighting. And Evan Green and I had gone way back since the Phantasm 2 days when I drove his grip and electric truck when he was the owner of Lee Lighting. And I was their grip truck driver. And that's how Evan Green and I started. And now it's come full circle where here I am driving his trucks when I'm starting out in the business. And now I'm renting his gear all over the world on major motion pictures. And he has been absolutely um, so important to my success as a cinematographer just as much as my abilities uh, of being a cinematographer. It's like your vendors bring your vision to life. And having and keeping them very close to the chest and doing the small things uh, that that reap huge benefits for you is are going to be very important as you build your vendors and your um, your personal uh, relationships with them. You know, it's like the simple Christmas present, which is what everyone does. And they always go and whatever you want to give them, that's one thing. But what I try to do is not necessarily do it always at Christmas time, but do it when the vendors least expect it. And that's when I will, you know, dump them a case of wine, not just a case. It's a case of wine that I personally selected. I'm a big wine freak and I love wine. And so they know that about me because we've hung out. We've had a lot of personal time. And this is stuff that's very important as well is to create that relationship, that friendship that uh, requires you not always take them out to dinner. They will take you out to dinner. And but asking about their families and asking about their personal life and not all about the business. Uh, that's what I find every time I have a conversation and Evan joined me down in uh, New Orleans when I was doing Into the Badlands. And I think we had a three hour conversation, nothing about the movie business. It was talking about his kids that had formulated and this amazing idea in Westlake Village, which is a place where you go and you taste wine as well as you paint. And uh, how he invested some of his money, uh, so his kids were supportive on all of this, and uh, that uh, he was, you know, right there uh, with the opening day. And Lydia actually has gone there with some friends of hers for birthday celebrations. And you know, this is the conversation we're having. So I, I, you know, understand that his kids have this cool business. Uh, I've taken you know, friends, uh, to this place to paint and, and, uh, taste wine. Um, and, you know, he hears about, you know, what I'm doing, uh, with, you know, where my daughter is applying to school, how my son's doing, you know, what Lydia's up to, how we're educating and doing this whole inner circle. All these things are not, you know, the business of renting gear and what's your next project and can I be on it kind of thing. So this personal relationship is huge. 
And uh, you want to also, not just the people that run the place, but the people that pull your orders and make sure they're done with expert, uh, you know, uh, expertise. So here's a perfect example. Tony Blue at Pascal Lighting is my contact there. And he's been there for a very long time. I think back to 2004 or five, I've been using him as my client contact. Now, I find out from, you know, inner workings, Evan, uh, what Tony really likes. Tony loves Disneyland. And he has a beautiful wife and kids that love to go there as well. Well, out of the blue, I just sent him four tickets to Disneyland and California Adventure that he could go and take his family on. These are the type of things, and it's not always greasing the palms as well. Okay, it's not all about that, but it's about understanding how important these vendors are and how important the people are behind the vendors that really get there and make sure that they do their absolute best for you. I remember that Tony also loved cars and beer. So when, uh, after I did Need for Speed, they did such an incredible job on that movie, you know, the different packages all across the country and, and everything. I sent him a steering wheel from one of the supercars and then all this Indian pale ale, uh, you know, the, the whole IPA stuff. And, uh, he was just ecstatic with this little, you know, um, basket that I sent him, but these are the small things that's so important for you to do to create this loyalty. Now, you talk about uh, building and customizing their gear. Well, within these relationships, you work out uh, wonderful agreements with, you know, people that as you talk and as they see that you are loyal, loyal to them, loyal to the community, loyal to helping them be uh, better, uh, they start to invite you into their inner circle and uh, for you to start to build and customize gear and design the cameras or lenses or lighting gear of the future. And this is something that has been uh, very rewarding for me to be in a room in this incredible think tank of a lot of ASC cinematographers and us just shoot the shit and uh, talk about the camera that we would all love. And sometimes something comes out that looks like that. And sometimes the conversation went to deaf ears and nothing changes. <laughs> but, you know, these are, uh, this is all part of the process. And you find the uh, ones that actually want to hear your point of view and you try to gravitate towards them. Um, but yeah, so to recap this question, uh, creating loyalty. Uh, amongst your vendors and uh, always going back to them. And even when you have, you know, um, studios that want, that tell you, you have to use this post-production house or you have to use this gear, you try to at least involve your vendor, the, the person that you've been loyal with, with at least giving a bid. And so you 
uh, uh, have been seen that, you know, okay, we know that they're going to probably go with Universal because that's who the deal is that the studio has a contract with. But I, as Pascal Lighting, have been given the ability to bid on the job. And you're always keeping them in the loop. Like, here's a perfect example as well. I'm in Prague. Okay. Pascal Lighting doesn't have a branch in Prague, but PRG, who bought Pascal Lighting, has a branch in Munich. Well, Evan reached out to me and he said, you know, I'd really love to help you out. Uh, can I bid on this job? And I was like, wow, okay, where? And they're like, Munich. I'm like, okay, that, that's not far away at all. So we, you know, positioned PRG to be able to, you know, I sent the, the list and everything. And they eventually bowed out because they felt like they couldn't do it uh, to the expertise that would be expected of them being five or six hours away and not having enough gear uh, to supply as well as backups and stuff. And they just felt like they wouldn't do uh, it justice. So I said, thank you very much, Evan and Martin, who was at PRG. And, uh, you know, we're going to go with a, a, a house here in Prague. But this is, again, always formulating the loyalty, always going to them first to say, hey, I'm going to Prague. Do you, could we make that work? Are you going to ship gear? And then they're like, oh, well, we have, you know, it's like these are the kind of questions that you always want to be asking. And again, uh, to summarize the bullet points here, to, to really respect your vendors, really go to the end of the earth for them. Special little nuances, Disneyland tickets, a case of wine, uh, you know, little things that kind of, you know, help you say you're loyal and you believe in them as uh, as the owner, operator, uh, you know, client contact, marketing guy, you know, it's like all these people are, are is where it's at because the business is the business, but the relationships are ones that you will take uh, for your whole career. I mean, the Mike Soa example is a perfect one to kind of uh, go right back to the beginning. Mike Soa was my colorist in 1998 on my first narrative project ever. And smash cut to 15 years later, this man delivered an amazing uh, color correction vision for Need for Speed and Act of Valor. You see what I'm saying? It's like these are the relationships that just continue to drive you as an artist and continue to help you uh, deliver your vision in ways that you never thought were possible based on budget and based on the scope. They are there to be able to make that happen. And uh, formulating and continuing those relationships and building those relationships are absolutely the core of uh, you being a great cinematographer. All right. Next question. I would love to have your opinion on spec commercials. I'm wanting to rebuild my demo reels as my skills have vastly increased after your workshop. By far the best hands-on learning experience I think I have ever had. Whew. Thank you for that. I, 
You know, my team and I have put so much into the illumination experience as well as the inner circle delivering this content and delivering and and basically pulling the curtain back for all of you to really see what it takes to be a great storyteller as well as a, gr a really great cinematographer. And these are secrets that, you know, not many people are sharing, I have to say. And... Um, or they like to, sh to share it to a very select group of 10 to 15 people. And we're trying to share it with millions. And uh, because I feel that it's so important to this online education thing is where it's at. And uh, as much as you talk about the hands-on experience, which was the best you've ever had, I'm trying to give you that hands-on experience within the inner circle as well on how we shoot it so you feel like it's a hand-on experience. And we're going to be offering many more opportunities that are coming up that are going to give you hands-on experiences within the inner circle, which are very exciting. I cannot wait. Uh, the fall is going to blow everyone's minds. So hold on to your short shorts because it's, it's coming. Okay. Um, so, uh, getting back to your question, uh, along with a few other workshops this year. So I need, so I need projects to shoot so I can put together a reel and wondered what the best way to go about it. Should I make spec spots or big name brands, generic or fake brands, or try and partner up with local brands and see if they would be interested? Just some tips for putting together a reel would be great as my current video work and clients are more basic corporate and construction footage, which is not what I want to be known for, nor does it allow me to push my myself. Austin Burke. All right, Austin. So here's a couple uh, things of advice. The spec reel is a great thing to do, but something that's even greater is reaching out for not, not for profit, nonprofit organizations that are just clamoring for content on their websites and shoot those. Because not only is it not a spec spot, it is, I mean, when, when you say spec, you're literally putting this thing together on your own dime. I mean, that's how it all works, right? You, uh, if a director comes to me, he's basically putting in $50,000 of his own money to get the crew, to arrange for the gear, to get all of it together. You know, everyone comes and works for free most of the time to help out the process. But in the long run, it's a good amount of money. Now that's, you know, uh, a big spec spot idea. But what what I'm looking at is what we did for the Casa Milagro Foundation. Okay, this is a perfect example of you uh, expanding your reel and taking and pushing yourself in places that you would normally not go. You're dealing with construction footage is what you talked about shooting. Well, how about telling personal stories like we did with Casa Milagro, where you can be very creative and very impromptu and very personal and very um, emotional 
based content that you might not have on your reel. And this is where the nonprofit organizations are huge for. And, you know, just like what Poe did, Poe uh, Chan, our, our director of this project, just started calling up nonprofit organizations say, do you need a commercial? Do you need a reel? Do you, I mean, a website, a video to educate and tell people what you're all about, what your cause is how you can get people behind this cause. And, you know, sure enough, Casa Milagro bit. They were just starting to build this idea down in Costa Rica. They were just trying, they, they started out as just donating food and, and clothes and stuff to these uh, sex traffic victims. And uh, now it's, it's uh, building a, a safe house and all this stuff that, that is going to help you know, people all, all over uh, Costa Rica and, you know, the eventual thing is for other ideas that blossom and, and, uh, and go to all countries of the world that have sex trafficking. But this is the, the whole thing. There's tons of nonprofit organizations that are all out there that are just foaming at the mouth for somebody who has a great idea, a great vision, a great concept, and that can bring this to their website to educate and inform people of what they do and what they're about. So that's where I would start first. And then second, you can then go into, you don't want to do fake brands because that just makes your spec spot cheap. You want to do brands. If you want to do a Nike spot, then it's Nike and you grab their logo and rip it off and put it on your, your commercial. And this is what you do. You don't do fake brands. You do the real brands. And, you know, coming up with uh, a lot of times, you know, you, there's so many great individuals within the inner circle that would love to be a part of this. And so you just reach out there. Hey, I'm thinking about doing a spec spot. Does anyone have an, an ad that they've written uh, that I could, you know, shoot and, and fund? And you'll be surprised on how many people uh, have written that ad, but just have not had the money or the time to be able to do it. And maybe you can guys can, uh, and girls can all collaborate together on these type of things. And, you know, this is where Lydia and I had hoped this community would go is where not only the sharing of everyone's knowledge, which has been so incredible, but also the camaraderie and the commitment to helping each other out, uh, as you know, as, as basically being there as crew members and helping each other out in the idea, in the emotion, in the vision, all these things, uh, would be pretty extraordinary. And, uh, I'd say just toss it out there and see what sticks. And so, you know, spec spots are very big for building your career. Uh, as well as, you know, going for these non-profit organizations and being able to, to deliver this. You know, it's so, right now we're at an amazing uh, crossroads, let's say, because the content that we 
can create for a very, very minimal price is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I look back to my days in film school where my 30 minute short film cost me $56,000. Now, $56,000 and a lot of loans that I was paying for 10 or 12 years uh, after I graduated from college is not great. You know, that's a lot of money. And I see now I could have done that for probably $5,000. So things have really, really changed. And I think that, uh, and that's $5,000 on a, you know, sound delivered, projected, you know, DI'd, you know, you know, color corrected everything. You know, these are the the things that it's so. You know, if if you have the knowledge and the skill set, this can all be done in your garage or in your office. Uh, the power of all the tools that we have at our disposal now is pretty incredible. All right. Next question. What is the best way to showcase your work? Do you suggest using demo reels, a website? or show a couple of selected pieces to potential clients. Over your career, what approach do you think had the best response? Okay. Well, demo reels are essential because that's kind of your business card as a cinematographer. Um, the demo reel is, is very important. It wants to be short and sweet. It wants to have uh, a music that has emotion that takes you on a journey along with matching the footage uh, that you've shot. Um, it wants to be edited in a way that leaves everyone wanting more. They don't want to have seen it all. Uh, they want to be clamoring for, okay, what else you got? Uh, that's the success of a great demo reel. Um, the, I think that the way, you know, making, designing a website, uh, that where you can showcase your work is very, very important. Uh, this is the future. This is where we are as cinematographers. We cannot just have our demo reels that we blast, uh, across the internet waves. Uh, we need to, you know, have a site that represents ourselves and as a creative expression. So these are things that you want to look into doing as well. Building yourself a website, it can be as simple or as complex as you want to make it, uh, but it should represent you as a cinematographer and who you are about as an artist. I have still photography on my website as well. So it's not just visuals, it's also stills that I've taken all over the world and that kind of represent a vision inside my head as, as a still artist, as well as, you know, the, uh, as a cinematographer. So there's many ways for you to showcase your work. Obviously, the demo reel is your business card. So that's something that you really want to concentrate on. The next thing is your website. Make sure that it's designed in a way that fits your personality and uh, that shows showcases you as an artist and your work uh, that uh, you want the experience that you want people to understand who you are, not only as a cinematographer, but as a human being. So these are important things to think about when you're building your website. The other thing is, uh, 
showing a couple pieces that you've selected. Well, pieces as a whole are very good. When you're starting out as a cinematographer, the montage is going to be what you're going to have to do because your work is never going to be able to stand alone because you're building it. This is you as, and anyone that tells you this differently, that it should be just your, you know, standalone works uh, when you're first starting out is not barking up the right tree. I find that, you know, you're going to need to montage it because the work is not necessarily there or it's inconsistent, right? That's how my work was. When I first started out, it was inconsistent. Sometimes I would knock it out or the director and, and the piece was perfect. And this visual element and style and cinematography and composition, everything was there. And then I do two or three or four other projects that weren't. And then I'd get another one that hits. Well, and sometimes within the commercial itself, it's a hit and miss. Some things look amazing, some things don't. So as a standalone, it will only decrease your value by doing the standalone just because it's a standalone. You want to to get the greatest hits, let's say. Uh, so this montage is very important to kind of get the greatest hits of your cinematography. And uh, if you are lucky enough to have standalone projects where you can look at it and say, I am so proud of every image in that uh, commercial or every image in that documentary or every image in that short film or long film format narrative, then then, you know, lay it out there, go for it. Absolutely. But if you're not, you have to use the montage as, uh, being your business card as a cinematographer, as you start out. And, uh, and that's what I did. I, for five years, I think four or five years, all I could do is generate montages. Uh, and then finally an agent saw one of my montages, my demo reel that I was shopping around and they bit. Now finding an agent is much more difficult now than it was when I started out because there weren't 15 million cinematographers out there. There was probably 5,000 and you know, those 5,000 cinematographers were, you know, there was representation and there were agents actively looking for uh, them. Now it's very much, you have to be pretty well established for you to get an agent nowadays. So there are some agents that are taking, you know, kind of, uh, you know, people that are just starting out. Uh, but it's a lot of time and energy for an agent to be able to constantly shop somebody that's starting out. So that's why, that is kind of kind of gone by the wayside of the days of yore, which was when I was starting out where Stacy Sheriff saw my demo reel and she took a chance on me. I was a gaffer, just turned director of photography, which back then there was only two of us, me and Claudia Miranda. That was it. Now that transition is happening much more, but back then it was just two people that had made the jump from gaffer to director of photography. Uh, 
And with this, it was always camera assistant or operator or second unit DP that was making that journey to director of photography. So she took a huge chance on me and gave me great advice and really put me in a circle of really great directors to work with and jump-started my career. And, uh, you know, eventually got me the Rat Pack and started on the whole narrative uh, journey. So Stacy Sheriff, you know, I just cannot thank her enough for everything that she did for me to get me started in my in my career. And, uh, you know, it's she took a chance. Those chances, mm, you know, they're just not out there as much as they used to be. You really got to shoot a good amount of work before you can put your demo reel together where people will actually give you uh, the time of day and, and engage a conversation with you uh, from an agent perspective. So with that in mind, you just have to keep on, you know, creating the content, shooting the best quality stuff that you can do and getting it out there in front of people as much as possible. And uh, someone will bite, just like they bit with me back in 1993. All right. Hi, Shane. Generally speaking, at one point in someone's career, do you think that it makes sense to join the union? What are the pros and cons of joining as a camera op versus a DP? And when do you think finding an agent becomes important, if at all? And finally, any insight on how to get noticed by agencies for commercial work? Thanks. Well, I wanted to ask, you know, do this question as well, because so much of what I just talked about kind of falls into this question. But let's address the union thing right off the bat. I didn't join the union until I was forced to join the union. So I was forced to join the union back when I was a cinematographer on music videos. They were all non-union and on commercials, they were all non-union. So as a cinematographer starting out, you never had to be in the union to shoot big budget commercials. Only after I started, um, I think in the late nineties, did it move into where the unions had kind of forced their way into the commercial industry and they uh, unionized commercials. Well, if that had happened when I was a gaffer, then I would have been, a, uh, you know, I would have been in the, in the union as a gaffer, but I never had to get into the union as a gaffer because there was nothing that I was shooting that was union. Everything was tons of music videos that I was gaffing, as well as tons of commercials that I was gaffing that there was no union involved. When I went to shoot the Rat Pack in 1998 is when I was forced to join the union as a local 600 member. And let's say not forced, but I had to join to be able to uh, shoot the movie because it was a union feature and I had never done any narrative work before. So this was my first narrative and I needed to join the union to be able to do it. So that was how I got into the union. Um, and, you know, as a director of photography, I, um, I wasn't a gaffer before in the union or wasn't a AC or a camera operator. So I cannot really address those questions on should you go in as an op or an AC and then upgrade to a director of photography. I can't really 
answer those questions because my approach was so different and kind of unique based on the timing of when things were unionized. So um, that's a little hard for me to address. But pros and cons of joining the union. Well, obviously, the union is a very pro-active environment. It is there for the members. It guides and puts, you know, things in place so we don't get abused, uh, work ridiculously long hours, uh, have turnaround, all these things that are essential to making a very creative and safe uh, working environment. So the pros of what the union does is pretty incredible. The cons would be of how to get in and why it's so restrictive. Um, I, I look back in the days of how do you get in the union? You have to be in the union to be able to get in the union. And that's the truth. So there's, it's not easy at all. Uh, and, um, you know, you have to basically get on a show that hasn't signed the union contract yet and then get grandfathered in because you were on the payroll before they went union. This is truly the only way that you can get into the union as uh, as per se. What I was hoping and the, where the future, I hope, of where the unions goes is it is a trade system. So they formulate an education just like we've kind of done for the inner circle. A training ground for young cinematographers. For cinematographers, actually young, you can be any age. Uh, and, and because the learning that we uh, are creating here is something that, you know, can be shared of whether you're a newbie or very advanced. So, you know, it's, it's formulating some kind of a training program that then people go through that then they get, you know, up, They're trained by the union, trained by the professionals within the union, and then they are be able to inject themselves in the union. Imagine this. Panavision right now, they've had it for years, six or seven of my assistants that I use on feature films all went through the Panavision program. And it was a two-year intensive program where you basically signed on to be uh, to work at Panavision, to scrape cases, to clean cases with scrubbing bubbles for 10 months. And then you got the ability to actually look at a lens and start to help on the prep floor. And then you moved up to a prep tech and all these things that happens within your two-year span. Well, what a, isn't that the best testing ground to being a member of the union in the local 600 as an assistant? Well, absolutely. Well, why can you not just get right into the union after that? I don't know. I'm still trying to ask myself the same goddamn question. This is where, you know, the unions have to go. They have to start a training program where everyone is trained in a way that is, it, it has the, uh, the safety and the thought process and the protocol and the etiquette of being a great grip, of being a great electric, of being a great gaffer being a great assistant, a loader, whatever it is. So it's all, I think that is the future. So that's the cons that we don't have some kind of training program. It has to be trained in these very weird, oblique ways that then 
enable you to get in the union if you can have that chance. And uh, finding an agent uh, is important. Well, of course, it's very important finding an agent. Uh, they are the people that are going to think about it this way. When you get into an agency that, you know, say you're new up and coming uh, cinematographer and, you know, they saw something in you that was unique. Well, you become this small fish in a big pond and that small fish is the big pond is the big players that are up top that if they're not available, you all of a sudden are able to nibble on what they're not able to take. And this is how it's worked with every agency that I've been in when I, you know, starting out and, and, uh, I wasn't a big gun at all in the Stacy Sheriff agency, but she had a couple guys that really brought in the big gun work. And when they weren't available, she would say, Hey, you want to take a look at Shane's stuff. He's a new guy, you know, uh, not uh, very unique style. And bam, all of a sudden I get a commercial doing a huge, you know, a Phillips Magnavox commercial. And, and then all of a sudden I'm introduced to this director and this director loves me and he starts taking me everywhere. And then boom, your career is uh, started. So, you know, this is what Agencies will give you your the small fish that feeds off of the big fish hand me downs, and uh, you know you'll s slowly work your way up that ladder to be the big fish, and then there's going to be someone at the bottom, uh, the small fish that can take uh, and reap the benefits of the stuff that you're not available for. Uh, so this is, yes, the agency is very important to get uh, and, and going about it is just doing the best work that you can in a demo reel that represents you yourself as an artist and as a human being and is short, sweet, concise, and to the point and uh, takes them on an emotional journey. Uh, of your cinematography. All right. Hi, Shane. I've joined the Inner Circle recently, and I am absolutely loving it. Awesome, Tom. Thank you so much. The content, your delivery, the community is just amazing. Well, thank you all, Inner Circle members, for creating this incredible community of sharing and just kindness and guidance and such a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I think we have a really extraordinary community, and I thank uh, you all every day for that. I've spent several years as a DP on my own small sets for docs and commercial jobs, but I've spent zero time on larger, more pro sets. I recently moved to LA and I'm pretty sure even a week on a bigger set would open my eyes and allow me to learn so much. If I was to approach some DPs I admire, that could, what could I offer to do f for free for them that would genuinely be useful to them and allow me the onset time I'm seeking? Thanks again, Tom. All right, Tom. And I'm going to shoot this out to everyone within the inner circle. So many people have asked of me to be on set, to be my assistant, to be, you know, to look, to, to carry my meters, to do whatever it takes to work for free. And I cannot thank all of you for your offer.
But it's very difficult, and I just want to kind of clue everyone into this. You got to think of a, a movie set and how much responsibility is put on me as the cinematographer to keep the days on schedule, to keep us on budget. Uh, there's a lot that is on my shoulders. And the production company, there's also a liability so when somebody comes and works for free, they are liable on their set. And if something, you know, uh, God knows if a light falls on them or lightning strikes or whatever it is, and that person is injured or hurt or killed or whatever it is in any way, this is a huge liability for a production company and for a studio. So it's very difficult to have this happen. And also you got to think about it is it's another mouth to feed. This business is very different, very different than every other business in the world. Think about it. When you sign up for Apple or IBM, do you walk in to the building and there's a full catered breakfast for you? No. Do you then, after six hours, and it's now your lunch break, do you then walk down into a beautifully catered meal that's all for free for you? Nope. Do you then, at wrap, or if you've gone way too long in your day and you're burning the midnight oil in the office at IBM or Apple, and you just want to get this work done because the creative juices are flowing and it's unbelievable, do they stop you and say, hey, here's third meal and another catered meal for you to all take advantage of for free? Nope. Okay, this gets to the point specifically. Those three meals in a day cost probably $30 to $50 a head. So when I'm being asked by many of you to be on set with me and that you'll be there for free, I love that. Oh my God, I can always use the hands. I have way too many cameras. <laughs> but with that comes the responsibility that I have to the production company, as well as the liability, as well as the insurance, as well as another mouth to feed. So that is something that I wanted to address because I've gotten so many of these requests. And then once again, I, I thank you so much. And I try whenever I can, whenever the ability is there, I try to, you know, I, I call it lightning in a bottle. There's those moments when somebody is going to get that shot and it's going to be like a lightning bolt. And, uh, so, you know, uh, but getting back to your question, Tom, you know, approaching DPs, they're going to have the same issues that I just addressed with you. Uh, getting somebody on for free, having this ability to another mouth to feed are very difficult uh, situations. Uh, so what you can offer to a director of photography is a lot of this prep being uh, with them during like a camera checkout, but then you're not involved with the project at all. 
uh, going on, if they're doing camera tests or anything like that, where you can be a fly on the wall to, to be for these kind of things that are already considered, you know, people donating their time. Uh, these are, are things where you want to try to get on the bigger sets. I mean, hell, uh, you know, being on an inner circle set when we're shooting content is like being on a massive set because we're using last time we had two 10 ton trucks filled with grip and electric and camera gear. So, you know, this isn't a small production by any means. So in the fall, uh, a select group of all of you are going to have this ability to come on and be uh, a quote-unquote masterclass. And we're kind of formulating the idea and the plan and everything about this experience. It's going to be truly amazing. It's something that uh, Lydia and I have been working on and the whole team. And I'm so excited. I cannot wait to launch this baby in the fall for all of you. But you know, I'm trying my best to uh, to make these a reality in regards to uh, giving you the ability to be on bigger sets. So, you know, I would say offering of the DP is these kind of um, things of where camera tests, uh, you know, prep, any of these things where you can go and be a fly on the wall and not necessarily a liability and not necessarily another mouth to feed. All right. Last question of our June podcast. Shane, what are your thoughts on eye correction as a cinematographer? I'm considering getting LASIK surgery. Okay. Whoa. Okay. Um, this is something that really, you know, came to me, uh, I think at 47, I started to lose my eyesight. I had really great eyesight coming up the ladder as a gaffer, as a young cinematographer. I had 2010 vision, if you can believe that. And then all of a sudden, um, it started to go. And it started to go in a way that that uh, all of a sudden I couldn't read my, you know, iPhone. And I had to hold it very far away. And then I realized soon that I had to go for the glasses. Uh, I'm not big on contacts. I don't understand the whole idea. Um, so I just wanted to find some really good glasses that made me look good and, and uh, I could actually see something. Now, as a cinematographer, having glasses is not the greatest scenario by any means, um, because obviously you have to have sunglasses that are prescription, then you have your glasses that are prescription. And then when you go to look in the viewfinder or the, the eyepiece, then you got to take your glasses off and then you got to hang them somewhere. And I hang them on my, you know, shirt and then I bend down and I'm doing a move and then they fall on the ground and somebody steps on them. I'm just describing what has happened to me and fathers and daughters. I'm walking, they fly out. I step on them, smash, got to get them, you know, I can't see anything for four days while I have glasses made, you know, scratching lenses, you know, oh my God, it's, it's a process. LASIK surgery, I think, you know, there's, there's some pros and cons to it. Obviously, you know, you can do it in a way that they say if you, it, it, and again, it all depends on your sight. Like I'm farsighted and nearsighted. And I think it's because I've stared at 18 K's my whole damn life uh, that I have this issue because most people are either farsighted or nearsighted. They're not both. Um, so 
Yeah, me being farsighted and nearsighted, I'd have to do one eye at farsighted and one eye at nearsighted, they said, uh, to be able to uh, create that. And I was like, ah, I don't know. Um, so for me, I'm opting out of the LASIK thing. I'm going to just use my glasses and deal with the, the, the whole thing that, that happens with dealing with glasses. But I do have to say that, uh, one of my friends who was a colorist had LASIK surgery done and he couldn't color for two months. It affected the way he looked at color. He had to almost retrain his whole eye. Uh, on color and, uh, you know, he couldn't see subtleties in color for a long time and he had to almost retrain his brain to see those specific colors. So that freaked me out, uh, talking to him about it. So I was like, okay, that's another con on LASIK surgery. (laughs) So, uh, but you know, whether, whatever the case may be, you know, Lydia says that I look really good in my glasses, so I'm keeping my glasses. Whatever makes Lydia say, wow, you're still really good to look at, that's awesome. And I'm going to continue to wear them because of that. (laughs) So, all right, everyone, that concludes the June 2016 podcast. And I thank you all for listening in. And I just want to say again, these podcasts are based on your questions for me to be able to reach out and touch all of you in a personal connection and to be able to answer these questions in a format that also educates all of our members and helps them. And maybe if they didn't have the ability to ask that question or they thought it or couldn't put it down into words, now it gives everyone the ability to take advantage of this amazing learning experience. So thank you so much again and have a great day. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.